0: Innovation is a touchy subject in the sport of cycling. A sport known for its tradition, as well as its incredible data analysis, the balance between the two is often up for hot debate. So today, we sat down with the new UCI Innovation Manager and esteemed former professional athlete, Michael Rogers, to talk about his time in the sport and where he sees its future. This week on Put Your Socks On. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton. And as always, I'm joined by Bobby J. Mate, how are you?
1: Well, I survived birthday week. And with (laughs) the upcoming Thanksgiving week, um, there's a lot going on. There's no doubt about it. Got to go down to Miami this last weekend for the Best Buddies event that they had down there. Uh, Chris Froome showed up, George Hincapie... Uh, Christian Vandeveld, We we had a fantastic time, although I don't think I've ever worn my mask as much over a, a weekend because the rules down there are a lot stricter up here than up here in South Carolina. But yeah, with everything going on right now, it was, again, just nice to be part of an event. And they did it in a very, very good way as far as the, the COVID protocols go.
0: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Best Buddies program and I'm glad to see that's, you know, kicking on. Always great to see what they're up to.
1: And what are you up to in, in Colorado? I hear the weather's getting a little cooler.
0: Yeah, well, Bobby, it's, uh, the weather is getting cooler, but for my, um, my latest pursuit, not quite cool enough. We haven't had much snow here, but over the weekend, I uh, became Redbook certified uh, in the sport of biathlon, WIT, for those who, who don't know, is a uh, like a, a cross-country ski matched with a uh, target shooting sport. I guess, you know, race a lap on skis and then you stop, you have to shoot five targets, uh, you get back up, you race another lap, you stop, you shoot five targets, um, you know, and you carry your, your uh, rifle on your back as you do that. And um, it's a sport that I've always been fascinated with Uh, since I, you know, first, uh, became aware that it was a sport probably 10 years ago. And, um, for me, that fascination grew. You know, I've always seen the marathon as like a sport that you can trace back to, you know, human survival, the ability to be able to run and to run far, um, and fast is, you know, pivotal in our survival. And then I sort of see biathlon a little bit the same, you know, with the idea that you need to hunt, uh, you know, in order to eat. And so tracking pray and then you know being able to then accurately like you know catch food uh so anyway so i sort of see it like that so it's uh it's always fascinated me and honestly like you know i've i don't cross-country ski i'm aussie i i you know i'm i'm very new to that sport again as an aussie you know i'm guns aren't really a thing that i've i've ever been around either so just i guess the like learning about the precision that's required to you know to shoot a target from from such a distance but then on top of that like the ability ability to like be above anaerobic threshold and and then stop you know and concentrate like your brain when it's in oxygen deficit as i'm sure most people are well aware doesn't work that well (laughs) and so the ability to kind of like you know stop focus bring your heart rate down you know be able to 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 execute you know a shot within all you know Whilst on top of that, maintaining all of the safety um, elements of that, and then and then getting up and going again, and getting back up above above threshold for you know extended period of time, and then stopping again is daunting and exciting. Um, I'm a terrible shot with a rifle, uh, and that's you know, and I'm yet to experience uh, you know the requirements of, of being above threshold and then doing it. So anyway, that's uh, that's my latest uh, winter pursuit, and I'm very excited to to get cracking on it.
1: I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with a shovel and with a heart rate basically going through the roof. That's, oh, you know, living over in Europe, you watch more and more European sports when, when cycling isn't on. And that was one of the sports that was just so interesting to me, not only from the skills per- perspective, because growing up in Colorado, I did cross country ski. And then when they moved it into the skating, I realized that, man, this is basically threshold and above the entire time. But then that ability to lower your heart rate, to calm down enough to actually hold a rifle, man, it's got to be one of the the coolest winter sports out there. That's for sure. So I'm glad to see that that uh, certification was for that, because when I saw it on social media, I was like, whoa, what's going on in Colorado? Even (laughs) Gus, Gus is uh, arming himself. What's going on out there?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it is odd, and it goes against uh, the grain of a lot of my, um, you know, kind of more broad thinking. But in terms of, it's a sportsman sport, right? Like anyone who's participated at any sport at like you know a, an elite competitive level, right? You have uh, some level of understanding about physiology, about you know the different energy systems required, um, but then also too just like how your body is under those various states you know riding along at zone one is, is is easy and you're chatting but like riding along at zone four and zone five like that's quite agonizing and so you also know you know once you've done an effort at at, at threshold how long it takes you to catch your breath you know to kind of regain you know a level of, of homeostasis and like you know even just to get some clear vision back and so A sport that, you know, required, like, that's an element of it too, is that ability to kind of rapidly recover and and execute something really precise from a skill perspective, um, is something that I've never, I didn't really experience necessarily in, in the sport of cycling. So it's a, yeah, it's just an interesting kind of, uh, endeavor. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely don't have any aspirations of of being remotely necessarily good at this sport but I think just from a uh from an execution perspective it's uh it's it's really interesting and exciting so I'm I'm I'm, I'm keen to kind of get into it and and see how it goes
1: you're just becoming the jack of all trades now. You know, mountaineering <laughs> and now none, bi- master of none. <laughs> master of none, yeah. You know. Well, you me. know,
0: when 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 you haven't had a uh, when you've had a lifetime of summers. I'm uh, I'm 31 now, and uh, and you suddenly uh, find yourself in a in a place where you know you have a very long winter. And, uh, and it's like a kid in a candy shop. You're like, oh, yeah, exactly. Ski mountaineering. What's that about? Let's get it. Let's give it a go. Like backcountry. Oh, you know, cross country skiing and all these other sports. So, yeah, it's just kind of like I'm I'm a kid again, really, if I'm honest, and, and all of these new sports. And, you know, the strength and, 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 and things that, uh, cross country offers translate over onto the, uh, into the sport of cycling. So, you know, there's a little bit of a crossover there, I think.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And speaking of exciting new endeavors and taking things into a into a new space, that brings us to the guest for today's episode, Mick Dodger Rogers.
1: Michael Rogers, known also as Mick or the Dodger, was grande class since the start of his career on the track. That turned into a very long and successful career on the road as well. And now is working for the UCI, the Union Cycliste Internationale, which is our sports governing body. As many cyclists, he has experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, but always carried himself with an aura of intelligence and calm that few cyclists can relate to. Welcome to Fizzo, Michael Rogers.
2: Hi, Bobby. Hi, Yoss. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure Good to join to you guys.
1: Them, hey? Yeah, Mick, we, we've known each other a while. You've been around the sport for a while. Getting our listeners up and running a little bit with who you are as a person, not only that you're the new innovation manager at the UCI now, but, uh, to those who don't know, Mick was a three time individual world champion in the, the time trial event. He won many stage races throughout his career, stages of the Giro. He actually won two of those in 2014 and stages of the Tour de France. Um, he started with the Mappe development team with, with guys like Fabian Cancellara, Mick. Give us a remind us a little bit who else was on that team because I remember you guys pulling up to the start line and it was kind of a who's who of cycling, you know, not quite in the, in the present, but you guys became big stars in the future. Who else was on that that team?
2: Yeah, correct, Bobby. Um, you know, when we look at the last generation of cycling, um, some of the big names: uh, Cancellara, uh, Pozzato, Bernard, Isel, uh, Alan Davis is a, among those names as well. Pavel Zerzan from from the Czech Republic. We were really an international team, all at the age of twenty, twenty two year old year old, and you know, with a lot of motivation to win and a lot of motivation to to learn about pro cycling. So uh, we were a very successful team at such a young age. It was actually quite funny. I think it was a one stage. Maybe it was two thousand and two. We were the most successful professional cycling team based on the race, the amount of race wins in the pro peloton at that stage. Um, so uh, they were great memories. And, and certainly some of uh, cycling stars uh, came from that team.
1: And you stayed with that Ma- Mape organization from 2000 until 2005, and then moved to that T-Mobile slash high road hybrid that it became from like 2006 and 2010, you know, going from being a young rider and winning races you know, once you guys did get the the nod for the pro contract. There, I saw a very unique change that you were able to integrate into that dominant lead-out train with Cav and Company, where you guys won almost every sprint out there. How how was that, it, like, being a part of that iconic leadout team of Cavendish back in the days?
2: Well, if I can just rewind a little bit there, uh, Bobby, I think you just missed one of my teams there. For, so I rode for Map A from two, at the end of 2000 to end of 2002 when the team folded. And then I I followed uh, Bettini across to Quickstep uh, from 2003 to 2005, I rode with Quickstep, and then transitioned uh, across to uh, Team Mobile that eventually became HTC slash high-road slash a few other symbols,
1: (laughs) words, (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I kind of blended those together because like Mape yes. and Quickstep just kind of became sure. the two. So excuse me for that. Yeah. But yeah, tell us That's about right. that that leadout train and and how how it worked for you back then.
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, it was probably one of the the most funnest times of my career. Um, having guys like Mark Cavendish around, just to name a few, were, were certainly characters of of the team. But it was an extremely successful. I think a couple of years with with HTC, and I think we were one of the the, the teams to really master the the leadout train. If we go back into the mid '90s, uh, you know, with Cipollini and Seiko, they they revolutionised the leadout train. And I think as HTC, we took that that one step further. We we started to understand some of the mathematics of actually a leadout train. We, we started to understand that when we were riding on the front with two or three kilometres to go at, at 60 plus k an hour, the amount of energy that the riders behind us would would need to come up beside Mark Cavendish or or Andre Greipel and the amount of strength and power needed just to ride beside those guys at 60, 65 kilometres an hour. We knew that that was going to have a, a massive effect on the actual sprint and I guess we just we just slowly learnt and uh, you know through through confidence and, and constant improvement, and probably some of the world's best sprinters we we won so many races.
0: I'm interested to hear like you just mentioned you know sort of breaking down the mathematics of of a lead out train and knowing you know the role that you've just sort of stepped into in innovation, I'm interested to hear like. I guess the the practical, imp, like the practical application of of that type of thinking. I guess how do you take, you know, the mathematics and this theory of okay, you know, like at sixty kilometers an hour, it's x x amount of energy to do this, but then on the road, you know, as everyone knows, whether you've whether you've been in a sprint or you've watched one on television, it's it's a it's a bit of a mess. Um, I'm interested to hear like how do you kind of take that theory and, and implement it? I guess as a as an athlete.
2: I think it was more or less of a uh, irritative process. Uh, you know, we started to get hints that that, you know, by going actually longer and and harder and faster the longer we're out and mixing to that several corners and, and and barriers and road traffic and and uh, and roads that go from three lanes down to one road to one lane, I'm sorry. We started to realize that in essence if we could provide our sprinter With that clean path in front of him. So a road that was, had no riders on it, that the sprinter didn't have to deviate from their line and didn't do, have to do all that stop start, that, uh, you know, constant pressure on the pedals and then slamming on the brakes that what we call the washing machine in the group. If we could save our sprinter's energy so he could concentrate on that last 200 meters then his chances of winning were were much much higher than the riders coming from behind who had been in that washing machine so i guess that was the, the at its most simple form you know and and of course as we went on we started to really realize that the amount of energy that the guys behind were spending just to stay near mark or or near uh, near Griple, they got to the sprint and they were, their legs were already finished
0: and then so you go from T-Mobile and, and High Road HTC, and then and and you you know you really dominate. Or you're part of a team that dominates the sprint. You also get your own opportunities uh, as a general classification rider. But in 2011, you then move to another team that's really disrupted, innovated, changed the way the sport is, and that's Team Sky, where you become a really important part of of the very revered uh, Sky Train, um, and and the leader on the road. You know that tr- I guess not necessarily a transition, but that evolution of your career and, and how it was fitting into that, that team and what really ex- excited you or inspired you about being part of this new outfit?
2: The transition to, to Team Sky was one that I found really fascinating. Um, I, I guess I guess I knew uh, Dave Brailsford by name. I, I didn't really know him as a person until he reached out to me at the Tour de France in, in 2010. And expressed his interest in building this this cycling team that that had the goal to win the Tour de France in, you know, a relatively short time frame. And listening to Dave kind of roll out that 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 big plan, I guess I just felt so excited by that. And there was this kind of this element of of, of kind of science and 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 sports science and and all these these kind I guess elements of that. A traditional European-based cycling team hadn't come to the forefront of. And I guess being an athlete from Australia growing up in the Australian Institute of Sport environment where sports science was quite a large component of the sport, you know, finally mixing those two of a professional cycling team and sports science, I just found fascinating. I guess that's what we did. We, we just, again, we broke down this complex sport of, you know, very European rich culture. We broke it down into smaller elements that were achievable. And we had a bunch of guys, Bradley uh, Wiggins, uh, Chris Froome. We had a bunch of really talented riders, but they weren't, they still hadn't kind of made their big step onto the international cycling world. And bringing all those elements together, as I've just explained, the science and, and a lot of learning and, and we, we changed, I think, the sport of road cycling. And, and I was extremely proud to have a small impact, you know, on, on, on that transition.
1: And you, you fit in that team like a glove. I mean, Dave obviously saw something in you everyone that came in contact with you, maybe it's the glasses, maybe it's a glasses thing, but you, you, you had this, this sense of intelligence and, and factoring in these things at key moments. But you know, the way that the SkyTrain used to ride was new, right? Like no one believed it would work. It was, it was very, very complex, but really it was quite simple. Like we informed you riders, like riding tempo, this will be the damage. If if guys try to jump away, you know, they're going to be able to maybe get a gap for 30 seconds or a minute, but then they're going to have to slow down a little bit. And you guys will always be continuing at your pace. And to that point, I remember uh, hearing from another rider, and this was in the Tour de France of, I believe, 2012, that when they were attacking, when you guys were doing your, your train... And they were trying to disrupt, disrupt the rhythm that this writer in particular said, when you hear Mick Rogers yell out, hey, we'll see you in another minute or two, that it just killed the morale of the guys to actually even try to attack you. Because we knew the numbers. I th- He even said that you were yelling out numbers at him like we're going 425 on the front right now. You're going 550. We'll see you in a minute and a half, two minutes. Is that is that folklore or is that true? Did did you guys have that much confidence that you, you, you would actually verbalize that at maximum intensity effort?
2: Well, I mean, I think it just came it came down to we we knew our I mean we knew what we were good at as riders, and I mean I had a, a a very good understanding of also what Chris and and what Bradley were capable of, and and the rest of my my teammates uh, that year. So you know when we were riding, you know simply simple math, when we were riding at our threshold uh, power values and and very high power-to-weight ratios, we knew that a rider riding at over that threshold and to get a a decent distance to be able to open up a large enough gap, the amount of energy required to put in is almost, for most people, unbearable. You know, Bobby, I mean, you know better than anyone that, When you're attacking on some of these climbs you might have to ride at 600 650 watts for for 30 40 seconds and there's only a handful of guys that can withstand that kind of intensity for anything longer than a minute so uh it's simple math they're going to come back
0: and that's and and i guess you sort of answered it just just there but i'm interested to know and i guess this is a question for you as well bobby because you know you guys work together and, and you were sort of in this environment but talking about you know understanding the math like again the mathematic but like you know you're watching a rider attack you're like okay i know they can do that amount of effort for 40 seconds and 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 so we're you know we've 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 got this under control i'm interested to hear the relationship between the team and the staff and and the sports scientists and and you for example like what's that relationship like i guess are you is it is it a one-way feed where you know they're kind of feeding you information be it in training and and then obviously in in racing as well or is it kind of like you're both there's a back and forth there between the rider and and the staff as to figuring out what's the most effective plan and and what is capable out in the road i guess because you guys are sort of applying this theory
2: yeah, that's a good question, Gus. I think you know uh, we had quite a unique relationship in in Team Sky. Uh, I mean, we had a very smart trainer in in or well, two very smart trainers actually. Uh, one of them here is is on the on the podcast in Bobby, and also uh, Tim Kerrison, which is another another Australian um, countryman who came from uh, came from swimming, uh, trained a lot of the swimming teams uh, in Australia national programs. And he came with this almost uh, different view on on training and and f- physiological performance. And he actually seen, saw quite a lot of similarities between the sport of swimming and cycling. And we started to to play around with with some of those theories that he had. And he was able to get complete buy in from the team and and all the riders. And I think where the real strength was in Team Sky was this. The relationship between the riders and the coaching staff. I mean, it was so, so granular. And there was this, this free. I mean, we were just getting into data at the time, like, you know, recording data on a mass scale, because up until, you know, that 2010, 2012, yes, we were collecting data, but we were just putting it to the side and, and not really doing much with it. So there was this great. Kind of stickiness between the coaching staff and the, and the riders, and, and I think a lot of it was just based on trust, and 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 each side of the equation had complete trust in the other. We were also led by a couple of fantastic leaders in the actual team on the bike, and that and that's Bradley and and Chris. So when you have that chemistry, you know that chemistry between the coaches, the riders, the leaders, the sports directors. You know, that's powerful, and and that's culture, and that's probably the hardest thing to find in a team is 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 that that chemistry and that culture that every that rises all you know it's the tide that rises all boats.
1: I have to agree with you there uh, yeah. as well, Mick. Uh, Buy in that that was in yes. one word what made that team so good from. The management to the coaching staff, to the directors, to the riders, to the mechanics, to the swaniards, to the cooks. Everyone was going in one direction, which at that time was very unique. Now we're seeing with the innovation of, of the sport of cycling that other teams are paying attention to that. But it was, it was really neat to kind of be a part of creating that template and now you know it's getting more and more granular down to levels which almost scare me a little bit of how how complicated and how strict uh, protocols are but, but you know then after after two years at sky you moved back to a team uh, run by bjarna reese which was saxo bank um tinkoff and and bjarna to me, has always had a special place to me because he also is is very minute in detail, Mr. Millimeter, everything like that. But there, it was some ups and downs. You know, you, you definitely had some success there. The one result among many that really stood out to me was uh, the 2014 Giro when you won two stages uh, coming off of uh, no racing, basically, and winning on the Zoncalon. There's not many people that can win on the Zonklon or have one on the Zon- Zonklon. Tell us a little bit about that day, being in the breakaway, dealing with that final climb. I mean, it must have been one of the highlights of your career.
2: Certainly was. Uh, I mean, the, I guess the Zonkalan is one of those mammoth, mammoth climbs that everyone fears as a cyclist. And because it, it is steep. I mean, it's eight kilometers or nine kilometers. I can't remember with an average gradient of, you know, what is it? 14 percent, which is which is tough, as you know, to to ride on a bike. I guess that victory kind of had come unplanned, if I can if I can say it that way. I mean, I was in good shape, and I'd, I'd won a stage, uh, stage thirteen, uh, down there in the coast. Uh, I can't remember the name of the town now. Uh, Savona, in Italy, um, which is quite close to the French border. So, I mean, uh, once I won my stage there, I was I was in this prep. I was in this space mentally of just you know anything that's going to come now will simply be a bonus and the second last day i i found myself in the breakaway relatively early in the stage uh, between the general classification riders things were start really starting to settle obviously with the on the second last day and i think it was movie star who was who had the jersey with quintana and they were at ease to let riders go into the breakaway as long as they weren't a threat in the overall classification. So within the, the stage starting after a couple of kilometres, there was a, a decent group in the in, in the breakaway. I had a teammate there in, in Nicholas Roach and we were able to ride quite a, a steady tempo all the way to, to the bottom of the Zonkalan. And the Zonkolan, I mean, it's a climb that I'd never ever done. Of course, you know, it's one of the iconic mountains. I'd, I'd seen it on TV, but it was never that climb that I had really studied. I'd, I'd done in training, so got to the bottom of it, and I was feeling great. Still had a teammate there, and and I started to think to myself, I can, I can do this, you know, I can, I can finish up here. My only worry was there was a couple of riders. Uh, particularly Pellizzotti, who was, um, you know, a talented Italian climber. And uh, I guess long story short, Bobby, it just turned out to be probably one of the best days I've ever had on the bike physically. You know, you talk about, you quite regularly hear cyclists talk about you had these one or two fantastic days per year where you just feel like Superman. You know when when all the I guess the stars align, all those energy systems align, and you just have a fantastic day. But that day was probably one of the best days of my career, and and they come pretty randomly, you know. And I don't really know to this day what how my stars aligned, but it was just one of those days where I felt fantastic because, Bobby, I don't know if you've done zonkalan in a race, but normally gravity decides normally who's going to win up a climb like that. And anyone over that kind of 70 kilogram uh, of weight, in theory, isn't going to win on such a steep climb.
1: Well, we all know that cycling is full of peaks and valleys, ups and downs, and talking about your peak, and now moving towards what ultimately was something that precipitated the, the maybe early retirement that you had to deal with was in 2000 the winter of 2015 and then going into 2016 you discovered that you had a little bit of a heart condition and we've spoken about this in length on previous episodes uh with mike lepp i've spoken about my issues that i had to deal with 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 ablation what exactly was your condition and what led to the decision to to end your career
2: It was during the summer of 2000, uh, during my first professional uh, cycling health check, that uh, my cardiologist discovered that I had a bicuspid aortic valve. So to put that into English, what it actually means is the aortic valve uh, obviously opens and closes and, and regulates the flow of blood to the heart. And a normal aortic valve opens and closes in three sections. So if you can think of the Mercedes-Benz logo, there's those three elements. Um, My heart only has two. So it opens and closes in an imperfect form. As a consequence, this imperfect seal during a normal heartbeat uh, the valve opens and closes with my imperfect seal. Some blood uh, from the aortic uh, valve flowed in reverse direction to what it should, in the direction it should go, and pumped blood back into the left heart, uh, less, left part of the heart, I should say, which caused a extra beat. Um, in the heart, which was required to clear the heart chamber of that blood that was flowing back through the valve in, in cardi- cardiology speak, it's called a extra systole. And it's in essence, an irregular heartbeat. So that's in essence, uh, the simplified version of, of what I was, uh, my condition. And it was something that I was born with. Um, and it, it took me until I was 20 years old to work it out.
1: And obviously, you, if you had it, if you discovered in 2000 and then retired in 2016, it wasn't incredibly detrimental to your performance. But like, what about now? What, if, if anything for that matter, are you doing to keep, keep an eye on it, even in retirement?
2: Well, so when they first discovered it, uh, what the procedure was to understand how grave the situation was or, or, how how they measure the severity of 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 the valve or the issue is they they do what a, a 24 hour halter. So they put a recording device on you that that you wear for 24 hours, you go to bed for it, and they start to measure the amount of these irregular heartbeats that happened over the span of 24 hours. So in my in my first years, when when they discovered this uh, this issue, I had I think it was I can't remember now, but off the top of my head was maybe 150 irregular beats over a 24-hour period, you know. And fast forward to the time that I retired, that was up well within the 2000s. 2000s, these irregular beats every 24 hours. And part of that process was actually having this, this heart scan or these heart checks every year throughout, throughout my professional cycling career. And we could see that the issue was progressing over the years, you know, went from 150, then next year it was 200, 400, 800, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now cardiologists will really start to get uptight when those amount of, of beats, you know, are starting to get into the thousands. And as, as consequence, the heart, being a muscle also starts to grow and um, which which is an issue i mean all elite athletes particularly at the professional cycling level will have a heart that's bigger than the ordinary ordinary person off the street and um, though my heart was healthy my uh, the thickness of my heart wall was starting to grow to a level that the cardiologists uh, thought was was very dangerous at the time
0: and so you wrap up your career uh, on the road uh, due to these, these health conditions. And then fast forward to now, and you've just taken a position at the UCI, as we mentioned at the head of this interview, as innovation manager. Can you outline exactly what that role is?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, innovation, um, I, think it's, I think it's a really exciting role because cycling is going through quite a, a transitionary period at the moment. We've got the invention of e-bikes, uh, which is was particularly taking off in, in the mountain bike space. We have virtual cycling platforms such as Swift, uh, Road Grand Tours, uh, Ruby that are starting to give this experience of cycling in the virtual space, which I think is an extremely exciting space. And then we have a lot of information collecting systems that, that are being used particularly in, in the professional men's and, and women's peloton. And obviously the Vellon box, which which uh, probably to a lot of your listeners, they, they sometimes see these little black boxes on, on the back of the pro rider's seats. So again, that's all collecting data. So the UCI, I think, is, is, is really trying to innovate. They're trying to bring a, a, you know, a federation that's been around for, for almost hundreds of years or hundreds, maybe 200 years, close to. And to ensure that the, the International Cycling Federation is in the right place to be able to, you know, to progress as a federation and to be able to regulate a sport, uh, that's, that's changing very rapidly.
1: And to many people and to many of the cyclists, you know, past, current, and future, UCI has kind of been like a three-letter bad word. And now you're working there. That I, as I've alluded to in in the beginning, you know you've always been well respected, you're well spoken, you have a lot of relationships with teams, with writers. but now you kind of crossed over to the uCI the dreaded uCI everyone's <laughs> complaining about that, but i I really think this is a a very obvious sign that getting someone like you involved that has this these many contacts and relationships is going to be massive going forward so congratulations on that new job but just to dive down a little bit more into those specific roles is this more dealing with with the teams or is it dealing with the 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 individuals the riders
2: well i would would say bobby the majority would be would be the teams and national federations um another part of the role is is regulation of equipment and clothing um, You know, particularly on, on, on the velodrome in such Olympic Games where you have a lot of the national federations which are really starting to push the boundaries of bike design. You know, they're not going out to manufacturers anymore. They are bring a lot of the development of their bikes in-house and starting to develop them. And where the UCI is, is sitting right now is, you know, we're aware that that Cycling must progress. You know, we we must. There must be evolution. You know, if we if we look at bike weight, that you know, I think it was set by the the Lugano Charter. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's basically a document within the UCI that was created by the UCI in 1996 after the World Championships in Lugano, that stated that the sport needs to progress, but. It must be still the human that's controlling the performance of the bike. You know, the strongest cyclist should win, not the cyclist with the best, best technology. And when we look back, that's um, that's approaching 25 years ago. And the UCI are very aware that you know that they need to. We, you know, the sport needs to keep progressing in a in a world that's moving literally, as you would say, at 100 mile an hour. Um, you know with the addition of e-bikes uh, virtual cycling with the uh, with the addition of you know national federations and teams starting to really push the boundaries of of aerodynamics of of equipment of clothing all trying to find just that minor little detail where they can get that smallest possible advantage
0: and so what is that like how are you working i guess with you know, these, these national federations and these people that are designing and, and developing equipment. What does that sort of relationship look like? Are you, are you going to them and kind of seeing what, what the boundary is like and then coming back to the UCI and being like, we maybe need to account for this or this is where the world's headed? Or are you kind of going in and saying that that's not within the rules or, or what? <laughs>
2: um well the fir- the first step in this process is the UCI currently have a a regulation with regards to for example the bike frame uh, mm-hmm. and it basically it says it has to have two triangles you know there's the front triangle the head tube uh, the the seat tube and and the rear triangle which is you know the the stays the back stays so the UCI uh, does works together with the commercial makers of of all bicycles uh through the world equipment federation uh cycling equipment federation and they're where they're working on these to ensure that the bike is safe you know we, we, what we don't want you know is someone coming along with a bike that's maybe you know two kilograms and as soon as a rider sits on it it's going to fall into pieces and he's going to fall in the middle of the group and it's going to cause a massive incident so that's at its most basic level What? Uh, you know, the regulation is there to, to try and regulate, you know, safety first and to ensure that that nothing nothing bad has happened. And those rules say that certain – the tubes of the bike uh, need to fulfil, uh, you know, a current size. They can't be larger than, uh, Bobby, I'm sure you're aware, of the, the three-to-one rule, which is, you know, uh, one thickness, three uh, in, in depth. So we're try- they're trying to avoid, you know, specific and special long, uh, tubing that can be used as an aerodynamic foil. Um, and the reason is, 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 is the, the governing body of the UCI wants this material all to be achievable to all countries. So, you know, if you look at some, probably some of the world's richest countries, which is, you know, uh, richest federations, which is someone like maybe the United Kingdom. They can't have access to technology that some of the poorest countries uh, are, are unable to attain because the cost of those development of those materials and the construction of those materials, are, you know, are very expensive. So at a, at a very simple level, the, the UCI wants equipment that is accessible to, you know, every, every country or every team.
1: And Mick, I, I, I'm so sorry. I should apologize. I mean, you just took this role. We're hitting yep. you with all these very okay. specific questions. I mean, no, that's all right. You know, the, but, but one of the, the most exciting areas of innovation for me is obviously the inclusion and in, and mass manufacturing now of e-bikes, but more more specifically, e mountain bike racing. Like we recently saw, Tom Pickcock he won the e mountain bike world championship for the first time ever. Fill us in a little bit on the the e bike mountain biking because I'm when we saw that result come out. I mean, it was it was interesting, but I had so many questions. Like, w- wait, what are the rules? What are the regulations? Is 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 that the f- the future for for some events? This you know the the e mountain bike racing.
2: Well, Bobby, I, I have to be honest. The e bike side of things is the probably the, the the area where I have least experience, and it's one that I, I'm really curious about. Uh, I actually just purchased myself an e mountain bike, uh, and I'd like to take part in some some races coming up. And uh, that was tough for me because I had to get over that macho thing. You know, that I'm going to pedal the bike and I, I don't want anything that's going to assist me. But, you know, to, to answer your question, I think, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? Is, is you have these motors and they're now allowed in some specific events, but it kind of opens the door to a broader base of people, you know, because cycling is a tough sport and I think it, it, it does open t- to a little bit more strategy, if I can say it that way. Let's say, let's say, you know, e mountain bikes, you could have a fantastic downhill, downhiller that has amazing skills on the, on the downhill elements, but maybe isn't quite as fit as that endurance rider that's been riding endurance events for the last 15, 10, 15 years. And when you mix those two together, I mean, it's creating something that the traditional sport of of cycling, which is very macho and very, you know, the fittest always wins. You kind of get this mix and I think it opens a lot of new barriers. So that's where my headspace is at the moment, Bobby. And, and as I said, you know, this is – the one that's, I'm had the least experience. So my plan is to sit down a lot of people with a lot of people who actually know it. They're, they're talking about it and try to get in sync with them and try to understand, you know, how the sport works. But it also has its challenges in is, is how do you regulate, you know, the motor? Because there are several brands and we need to be aware of the fact that a particular motor could have an advantage over another. And today, it's very easy to, you know, not super easy, but there are packages available on the internet that you can simply download, and you, you can change the values of that of those motors. In essence, hack into the motor, which is, by the way, against you know the laws of any country. But you are able to to hack into these motors and and change and remap uh, the performance of the motors. So, at some stage, there would have to be, you know, some regulation around that because if you have a motor that goes to uh in europe what we have is a 20 you know the, the motor stops at 25 kilometers now but if you have a motor if you have a hacked motor that can go to 27 kilometers now you've already got quite an advantage over, over the other competitors
0: and so like i guess moving to like clothing and equipment maybe even including um, um e-bikes i'm interested to hear your sort of perspective on on what you're most excited about in terms of innovation within the sport be that you know as you said like the e-racing platforms, these, um, you know, electronic um, bike platforms, you know, equipment, et cetera?
2: Well, probably the one that's the most interesting to me uh, right now is definitely in the virtual cycling space. I mean, you, you just had this explosion of, of, of participation and uh, probably thanks to, well, if I can say thanks to the COVID-19 uh, epidemic. Uh, I think it came out that cycling has just such a a, a massive advantage compared to other Olympic sports in mm-hmm. the virtual space, because cycling has always been a sport where we've been into science, we're into tinkering, we're into trialing, we're all into these little kind of little projects, and I guess over time that's developed into a platform like Swift, where you're taking you know, uh, a home trainer, which, which have come, I mean, just leaps and bounds in these last three or four years. You've got now access to, you know, massive compute infrastructure and networks that are able to scale all around the world. So you can bring all these elements together by the internet and, you know, you have the result such as a platform as Swift, Ruby, Road Grand Tours, uh, just to just to name a few
1: and what i see is the common denominator in what you mentioned about the online gaming platforms e-bikes is that cycling's becoming more inclusive instead of exclusive i think that we all have our stories especially when we started racing of you know maybe cyclists being a little elitist and inclusive but now anybody can get on a turbo trainer a lot of people can get on a e-bike of some sort and really just participate and have fun and enjoy being outdoors. And let me tell you Nick, you're you're what 4 or 5 years into your retirement. I'm 12 and I support anybody buying an e-bike. Because you know what? You're going to be out there with us. We have friends that obviously weren't Olympic athletes, weren't Tour de France veterans that are now able to go out and enjoy that ride. And same thing with with online gaming or online cycling is that you can ride with people that maybe you never rode with before. And it's getting more people on bikes. So we are becoming much more of an inclusive sport instead of exclusive, because that's that's what the world is seems to be in need of right now.
2: Yeah, exactly, Bobby. And, and, you know, also you start to think of, you know, maybe a world that, that at least for the foreseeable two or three years, that, that maybe the course has been changed due to COVID. And as I was touching on before, I think cycling has a massive, massive advantage over some of these other Olympic sports and maybe a two to three year lead, which could in essence, change the way that the commercial uh offering of our sports where we've always struggled compared to american football compared to uh what what i call soccer you guys football um you know where they have such a mature commercial offering compared to cycling you know what if we what if we are stopped from, we're unable to to hold events uh, in 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 live, real person events for these next two or three years? I mean, cycling has such an offering to be able to, you know, go out to these commercial partners and say, listen, we can still hold events in a virtual space. And what does that look like? Does that does that change the commercial underpinning of of the sport of cycling? And so there is some commonality uh, there between all the stakeholders and maybe we can just rewrite the, you know, rewrite the books just a little bit, you know, the the relationships between the teams, the organisers, uh, the UCI, the athletes and, and all the stakeholders in and far between. So I think we have a huge opportunity in this space. Um, but, of course, I think it needs to be done right. So there's credibility at the heart of e-cycling and, and that's where the UCI's interest currently sits right there is to ensure that the longevity of, of virtual cycling continues and to make sure that a, a good regulation is in place that, that has a that creates a pl- even playing field for for all participants
1: And, and talking about uh, credibility um, and more more specifically in the time trial you were a three-time world championship in that event. And yeah, there's been a lot of innovation. I mean, there, remember the days where it seemed like position was like the big innovation. You had the the Superman position. You had Graham Obrey with the, the egg position. You had the praying mantis position. But just to put you on the spot, with your experience and now with your lead role as innovation manager at the UCI, I'd be interested to hear where you think the most- advantage is gained is it the helmet is it the bicycle is it the the position is it the skin suit and clothing what, what do you think is the most important or what did you pay most important to when you were racing and then maybe now see what guys are pay, paying most important to currently
2: well um I think the last three or four years, five years, I th- I think time trialing has has come just leaps and bounds once again. You know, when our generation, Bobby, we were really into optimizing, you know, this this one item. Just as you just as you ask now, whether it's the helmet or whether it's the handlebar or the the skin suit or the position, whereas now. I think we're the you know where the real value is now is to see the holistic view of all those elements and understanding the relationship between each of those elements because you can go into a very extreme position where you place your handlebars next to the hub and you put your seat up as high as it can go and of course you know that's going to reduce the most. Aerodynamic efficient position. But on the other side of that equation, your body is now in, in a, in a body, in a position where it's not able to maintain the power. So it's a relationship for me. It's a very much a relationship between all those elements and how do they start to interact with each other to have a net result. And I think the teams now and the federations are getting very smart at that. On the individual rider, and then obviously on the track, you know they're really starting to understand by changing one of those variables on the rider on the fr- on the front of the team, pulling the team along. What's the net effect to the rest of the team? So all these interactions is is currently for me that's really really interesting.
0: Oh yeah, well I was just going to I was going to change it, but I, I just wanted to know, I guess, like on that point, right? Um, and and think. You know, we've sort of discussed the human body um, and, 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 you know, position on the bike, aerodynamics, and then we're talking about e-bikes and that sort of stuff. I'm interested to hear if you have any opinion on the balance between, you know, like unfettered use of technology and development versus that traditional, um, more traditional um, sort of origins of, of the sport of cycling. Um, and, I'm, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on like do we, you know, are you really gung-ho about embracing new technology and, and, and kind of really pushing the, for, the sport forward or how much do you think we need to hold on to the past?
2: I think we need to hang on to the past, uh, Gus, in the way that it's the tradition of the sport and, you know, it it, it does come under the Olympic umbrella where where, you know, performance, human performance – is, is, is one of the strongest values that the Olympic movement has. But at the same time, I think, I think the world is, is progressing. Younger generations don't seem to be as motivated to sit down on the lounge and watch a six-hour Tour de France stage or, you know, uh, watch... I mean, when I was a kid, when the Olympic Games were, were on, I mean that was just check out of school for one month and, and watch all the sport, whether it was cycling, whether it was running, athletics, swimming, gymnastics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It seems that the younger generations aren't quite as um, motivated to sit there and do that. So the sport in general, I think, needs to start to interact with those younger generations And whether that's via computer game or whether that's via a, a, a a bike with, with a motor on it, I think that's what the, that's what the sport needs to do to ensure that, as you said, Bobby, earlier on in, in, in our interview here, these, we need people on bikes. And that should be one of our motivating factors because people on bikes is great for the world. It takes traffic off the roads. It's great for our environment. So I think, seeing from that very broad perspective, we have to sport needs to move with it with the demographics of of the world.
1: Well, Mick, thank you so much for your time today. I, I'm very confident that you are going to be extremely successful in your new position there. I think the the riders appreciate having someone like yourself there as well. And I just wish you all the best of luck and look forward to what the future holds.
2: Thank you very much, Bobby. Thank you, guys, for having me. I really appreciate yes, it. Mate.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks again to Michael Rogers for joining us. You can find all of our past episodes as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at VeloNews.com. Please continue to listen, like, and subscribe at whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. We appreciate your support and please spread the word by telling your friends about us
0: you can reach out to us on social media physopod p-y-s-o-p-o-d on twitter at that is gus or at bobby.julik on instagram get in touch with us there any feedbacks any suggestions today i really enjoyed that conversation with mick rogers and i'm hoping that we can have him back sporadically over the course of of the future of the show to just get an update on what the uh what the uci is doing and and where he sort of sees and and is pushing the sport Uh, until next week thank you so much for listening my name is Angus Morton
1: and I'm Bobby Julik remember to stay safe stay sane stay calm and don't forget to put your socks on